You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena, the parochial vicar of St. Anne's Parish in Butte, Montana, and chaplain of Butte Central Catholic Schools. Enjoy. Often our life in this world feels like we're an army of 10,000 facing off against an army of 20,000. If we sit down and sort of try to assess what life is going to be like for the next 50, 60 years, and we look at the struggles we're going to face, and the hardship, and the possible bad fortune, and the mystery of it all, it's, it seems like an impossible battle to win sometimes. I have some of my millennial friends who, you know, they've been married for a while, and they haven't had a kid yet, and so as the priest, it's my job to ask the awkward question, when are you going to have a kid? And... They say, how could you bring a child into this world as it is? And I was like, I mean, when you look at the history of the world, this is a pretty good time to do it. But I understand your struggle. Actually, that's one thing I don't really see in Butte. There's just so many awesome big families here. It's kind of just a thing that people do, and it's, and it's great. Maybe I should bring them over to Butte. But I think they're looking at their life and they're, and they're saying, you know, this is, I'm an army of 10,000 against an army of 20,000. And, and so they think maybe if we can't win, at least we can come out with a draw. And our tendency so often is to take the thing that we have in our life that's best and sort of make that the center of our life. And perhaps that thing will be enough to sort of get us through this life in a, in a at least a survival mode. And, and sometimes if, when times are hard, we start grasping onto something that might actually destroy us, a, a thing that legitimately isn't good for us, something evil. I just reread Lord of the Rings for the first time in a long time, and I was fascinated by the way that the ring of power sort of grasped, took, took hold of those who possessed it, that it was the thing that brought them misery, but at the same time, it was the center of their life. It consumed all of their desire. But it was precisely the thing that was making them miserable. Uh, and that's the case with us if we, if, say, if we start to fall into an addiction or start to fall into some false identity of who we are or various other struggles that consume our energy but also destroy us. But we usually know when those things are taking over our lives that, that that's not good, that's, that's, that that's something we need to fight against. Even if the process of acknowledging and overcoming it is a long battle, perhaps. Maybe a lifelong battle. But usually we know that that's not a good thing. More often, the thing that we put at the center of our lives is a good thing. It's not something evil, but it is something good. And it, and it often feels like it'll sustain us for years. And then, and then perhaps it does sustain us in a, in a sense of satisfaction and happiness for years. But eventually the battle doesn't go our way. I think that's why we see so many of our friends and families, and perhaps we've experienced it our, ourselves, have a sort of breakdown in the middle of our lives, where suddenly the thing that we've been orienting our lives around no longer satisfies. It, it just wasn't enough. Or perhaps it was taken away from us. It crumbled before our eyes. And our life is suddenly empty of any meaning. 
But maybe we see this happen in our friends and we think, if, if perhaps I can get enough of those finite goods, then I'll make it through. That'll add up to a good life. Like if I, if I can have a great family and a satisfying career and I go on vacation enough and I stay fit, maybe I'll be satisfied. And I, I mean, just to be honest, I haven't seen that combination of things sustained for very long in this world. It's just the way of the world that life kind of hits us and, and it's hard to sustain any of those finite goods. But even if it were the case that we could do it, then it still wouldn't be enough. Because that's not how we work. I think we realize that, and there's, some, there's a few philosophers in the 50s who, you know, they didn't have any faith, and part of that was, in the 1950s, you'd just come out of two horrendous world wars, especially if you were on the, on the continent of Europe, it, experienced them both in a devastating way and the world seemed to be in total upheaval and it wasn't even over like the Cold War era was beginning and they began to see our, our sort of self-awareness, our consciousness as, as a burden. You know, we're thrown into this world full of finite things, of, of limited goods, yet we as human beings know that our desire isn't limited, it's unlimited. None of those things can sort of settle us. We look at the animals around us and they don't have the problems that we have. You know, dogs don't sit and ponder the meaning of life and stress out about it. They don't look in the mirror and say, who am I? They just go about and do whatever it is dogs do and they're happy doing it. Yet we as humans, you know, we have this unquenchable desire for perfection, for immortality. And we see it everywhere in our culture. Even outside of religion, we see this crazy desire for for immortality and perfection. I recently watched a a documentary of of a climber, a free solo climber named Alex Honnold, and he had spent sort of his whole life, but at least the last couple years, focused on climbing El Capitan down in in Yosemite. It's a 3,000-foot, absolutely stellar wall, biggest wall in the world. And he wanted to climb it without ropes. So he trained for two years and basically memorized the entire thing. It was incredible to watch. And, and then he climbed it without ropes. It was one of the most incredible outdoor adventure feats in human history. And then he gets to the top. And I don't want to ruin it, but I'm going to ruin it. So he gets to the top. And all he says is, that was delightful. I'm delighted. That's all he has to say. His whole life, that, up to that moment, had been focused on that, and all he could say is, I'm delighted. And then he goes back to his van and starts training for whatever he's going to do next. C.S. Lewis says that it's exactly in the greatest moments of our life that we realize that nothing in this world will ever satisfy us. And because we get to that moment, and everything's been building up to that, and then it, it just doesn't seem like it was worth it, or, or, or it's worth it, but it just wasn't what we thought it would be. So we look back to the image of the gospel, and, and it's, we look at that battle of 10,000 against 20,000, or we, look at the, we calculate the cost of what, it's gonna, what it's, we're going to need to build this building, and we realize we can't do it. So then what do we do? You know, just sue for peace, or settle for mediocrity? It's certainly not the Christian way. C.S. Lewis follows that 
what he says right there with, a, with another insight. And he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That if, if nothing here seems to satisfy us, then there's got to be something more. And this is such a fundamental insight that when Jesus talks about it in the gospel today, he has to be brutally clear. He has to be stark in the way that he speaks about it. And, and he uses hyperbole here because he's telling us that we must hate all of the things we have, renounce all of our possessions, and hate even our family. Now, does he mean actually cultivate a feeling of hate for your family? No. We look at the holy family and it's the perfect model of love. But what he's saying is, if there's one thing in this world that we could put in the middle, that we could center our lives around entirely, and it might just feel like it's going to satisfy, that's family. Family is the greatest thing that we have in this world. But even that, if we make that everything, even that won't satisfy. The intensity and the oneness of heart that is demanded as a Christian can be discouraging. We look at what Jesus demands and we say, you know, this is too hard. Why are you asking so much? But he knows our hearts and he knows that the way is narrow. You know, there's, it's the narrow way. It's the gate that's hard to get through. And he, and he tells us exactly what's necessary to get there. So we can't set up a rival good to the good of God. We can't set up a rival good to the good of God. We've all done it, and we're all doing it right now in our lives in some way. I am, you are, and which is what makes it so hard to be a Christian. Because as I mentioned, like giving up an evil thing or, or knowing that there's some evil in our lives that we need to get rid of, some terrible habit, that's okay. We all know that. And that's just a matter of growing in the trust of God and the virtue and the, and the strength of will that's required to overcome it. So it's not a matter of it's not it's not a matter of wanting to or not. It's just a matter of being able to. But giving up a good thing for a better thing is infinitely harder. It's infinitely harder to give up a good thing for something better, or to or to subordinate a good thing for something better, because we almost feel like we're doing something wrong when we do that. This is. This is why it takes a sort of leap of faith. Even as a priest, you know, my whole life is oriented toward this. Like, I'm, my life is designed for me to be able to put the Lord at the very center, and I still struggle not to put rival goods in front of the good of God. And especially because we hear every day from the world, like, happiness is to follow your desires, man. Like, whatever you desire, that's exactly who you are. And you better follow that, and that's going to make you happy. And that is an appealing thing because that's kind of what I want to do most of the time. I just want to follow my own desires. I want to be the master of my own universe. And Jesus says exactly the opposite. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that's a hard thing to hear. Because apart from giving away our stuff, or, not, or just like denying our stuff, not making it the center of our lives, denying all of our own desires and not making them the center of our lives, it's the will. It's doing what I want to do that's the hardest thing to give up. So denying ourself 
and taking up our cross and then following someone else beyond us is difficult. And in case we're confused on this or we don't know how we feel, you know, the first reading tells us, who can know God's counsel? Who can conceive what the Lord intends? For our deliberations, our thinking is timid. And our plans are always unsure. The Christian life is so hard to understand until we just take that step. And then every step is just as hard. Like every step we take in following the Lord is like the first one. You know, it's mysterious. We don't know what it's going to involve. We don't know what we're going to have to give up. But if we can just lay everything at, at the feet of Christ and just take that step, we'll realize that there's joy in it. But everyone is hard. It never gets any easier. But we're called to that difficult and great life as Christians. So let us be courageous in our faith. Lay down our will, that most difficult thing to lay down. Uh, Take up our cross and follow the Lord. Amen.